Perceptions podcast. Hi, John Dixon here. Welcome to another bonus interview from the making of season six of Underceptions. It's exclusively for our Underceivers, our faithful Underceptions Plus subscribers. In our episode called Kingdom Come, all about what the Bible does and doesn't say about heaven and eternity, we included a brief cameo, a kind of phone a friend, with Professor Peter Kreeft of Boston College. He is a really big deal. He is a wise and insightful thinker with too many books to his credit. It's almost unbelievable. Anyway, for that episode, I asked for his take on the beatific vision, a venerable Catholic and Christian, but specifically Catholic traditional idea that warranted a closer look. While I also had his attention, I asked him a few other things about the specifically Catholic vision of life, death, heaven, and even purgatory. I thought you might like to hear the full interview. Some of it might cause proud Protestants to pull their hair out, but I tell you, every line is thoughtful and worth pondering. Thank you so much, Peter. I have admired you from afar for many years. And uh, it's lovely to talk to you. I want to ask you, what what are the foundational ideas of the Catholic worldview? Well, I have no original answer to that. Uh, the church answers that in her creeds. Uh, the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed, as expanded by subsequent creeds, have, I think, always been the outline of uh, the Catholic worldview. So creation, redemption... Eschatology, well, insofar as you, or all that basic stuff. Insofar as human life is a story, uh, every story has three stages, and the story of uh, religion or the relationship between God and man goes through the stages of creation, fall, and redemption. Uh, and even the last stage, the third stage, begins as early as the third chapter of Genesis. So we're in that story. Yes. I know you have long emphasized... Um, friendship between Protestants and Catholics. Mm -hmm. But will you permit me to ask you, yes. what do Protestants get wrong? And I don't just mean at the level of individual Bible passages. I mean at this more fundamental level. Well, there's two answers to that question. In my experience, the most important thing that they get wrong is uh, the incarnation. They believe in it, but they don't extend it to the church. They don't extend it to the world. They don't... Uh, uh, they don't deny, but they don't really understand the principle that grace perfects uh, nature rather than rivals it. The relation between the soul and the body, the relation between faith and reason, the relation between uh, love and lust, the relation between reason and the passions, uh, the relation between supernatural and natural truth and goodness and beauty. Those are all examples of... Uh, of the Catholic both and versus the Protestant tendency towards an either or. Okay. That's a helpful uh, starting point to, to really begin to um, think about uh, the Catholic view of heaven. But I, I want to ask you uh, about a statement you have made that I find intriguing, um, that you want to be true to both Christianity and philosophy, to Christ and to Socrates. What does that mean? How does it play out? Well, philosophy is man's natural and uh, God-designed and God-approved uh, wonder at existence uh, and search for truth. 
in fact, uh, the word, very word philosophy means the love of wisdom. Uh, and I think Socrates exemplifies that uh, probably better than any subsequent philosopher. Uh, it's not as if philosophy is over here and Christianity is over there, and I, I want to marry them as equals. Uh, rather, I think that uh, as C.S. Lewis and, uh, and Tolkien and G.K. Chesterton would all say, there have been three natural fertilizers or seed beds or preparations for the gospel. The most important one being Jewish prophets who are infallible. Uh, and the Greek philosophers who did to the mind what the prophets did to the moral will, uh, and even pagan mythology, uh, which does to the heart and the imagination a kind of uh, a preparation. Uh, and Christ fulfills all three of those, hmm. which are the three fundamental aspects of human nature that distinguish us from the lower animals. Yes. So let's turn to heaven. Um, you've said that anything positive we say about heaven can only be an analogy. Uh, it's not what it is like. So I want to ask you, is the concept of heaven just too vague to be of any use or any hope? Exactly the opposite. It's much too concrete. C.S. Lewis gives the analogy in his book Miracles of uh, <laughs> some fish that uh, catch a glimpse of man uh, and then try to explain it to those who don't have that vision. And all they can say is the negative. He doesn't live in the water. He doesn't get his food by uh, swallowing it through gills, etc. cetera. Uh, but the only reason for the negatives is that there's something more positive that excludes those narrow little negatives. So I think in heaven, everything that we find on earth, we will find in a form that is so real that everything on earth will seem like a shadow. But there's a connection everywhere. No, nothing good is lost in heaven. Hmm. St. Bridget said that uh, she expects in heaven to swim in a great lake of beer. Uh, it'll be better beer than anything on earth. <laughs> uh, your Australian listeners will be um, tempted to convert to Christianity at that point. <laughs> um, the Catholic outlook emphasizes the so-called beatific vision, gazing on the beauty of God. Can you explain what this means? And will you perhaps spare a thought for my skeptical listeners who think that sounds interminably boring? Oh, it does, if you interpret it in earthly terms. Uh, even the most beautiful work of art bores you after a while. In fact, that's one of the arguments for heaven. Uh, everything on earth ultimately gets boring. Uh, and nature makes nothing in vain. So that dissatisfaction with earthly beauty and truth and goodness and that desire for something that we can't define and can't attain in this life, uh, that is not simply meaningless. That has to mean something. All right. So, so heaven is not boring. So back to the question. What exactly was the question again? I lay the foundation for an answer. What, what, the answer. Is, what is the beatific, the beatific vision? vision is not just, <laughs> the not beatific. just the vision of the eye, but of the soul. The whole self sees the whole God. Uh, it's the deepest kind of knowledge. In, in Scripture, Christ defines eternal life as, this is eternal life, to know you, the only true God. And that knowledge is not simply a kind of external seeing of an object, 
nor is it simply a thinking of a concept. It's a person-to-person relationship. In fact, the word no in the Bible often means sex. God obviously doesn't have a body. Nevertheless, sex is an image of the spiritual marriage that uh, is going to totally fulfill us in heaven. Uh, The uh, Eastern Church calls this theosis, uh, divinization. We actually participate in the divine nature. We're joined in a finite and dependent way to the very nature of God. That's, that's as intimate as it gets. That's, that's what we try to do in marriage. We try to get inside the other. Hmm. I was talking uh, with a Catholic archbishop here in Australia just the other day who happens to be a listener uh, to this to this show. Hello, Peter, if you're listening to this episode. Um, and he tried to help this sceptical Protestant here get his head around purgatory. Ooh. And I reckon he would love me to ask you to explain this idea, please, both philosophically and scriptural. Oh, that's an easy one. Uh, like the Trinity, it is very scriptural, even though the word is not in scripture, the word Trinity is not in scripture either. Uh, It's almost a necessary conclusion from three scriptural premises. Premise number one, uh, we are sinners. If we say we have no sin, uh, we speak not the truth. And that doesn't change uh, at any point until death. The saints are the clearest about that. They know they're sinners. Uh, Number two, nothing sinful enters heaven. There's nothing evil in any way in heaven. Number three, the difference between good and evil, between uh, uh, sin and grace, is is total. So it follows from that that between the time we die, when we still have these sinful habits, uh, and the time we appear in heaven, in which we're perfect, God has to do a major work on us. And if you don't want to call that purgatory, fine. But you don't just sashay into heaven as you sashay into a bar and plunk your your posterior next to God and talk about football. Uh, The difference between uh, absent-minded professors uh, talking about heaven on a podcast on the one hand and the beatific vision, the spiritual marriage to God on the other hand, which is infinite and uh, inconceivable and uh, ecstatic joy forever. Uh, This is a rather large difference. Something has to be done to us to make us capable of that. And that's what Catholics call purgatory. It's not where you go to pay for your sins. Jesus finished that job on the cross. Yes, I guess. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. I guess Protestants sometimes worry, don't they, that this somehow diminishes the work of the cross and the work of the spirit. Why can't it just be a free gift and miracle that I am made fit for God's presence. That's like saying, why doesn't God just snap his fingers and free us from sin without the cross? Uh, The process has to be real. It can't be just legal. The forensic theory of justification, which even many Protestants don't believe, is is thin. It's it's really a thicker thing. It's a a realer thing. Uh, This is why justification doesn't complete the process. Sanctification does. Uh, Christ finished justification on the cross. We're forgiven. The the work is over. But we still have to interiorize that. We still have to personalize that. Mm -hmm. Uh, We still have to be sanctified. We we still carry around those those sinful habits, those uh, uh, stupidities, those tendencies. 
uh, like an albatross around the neck. And that's a bad image because the albatross is something outside of us and God could simply smack it in the face and, and free us from it. But without our free cooperation, God doesn't do anything to us. He's not a tyrant. He doesn't, he doesn't rape us. He seduces us. So we have to cooperate. We have to work with him. Of course, grace is pure grace, and we're totally dependent upon him. But grace activates nature. Grace turns on our free will. It doesn't turn it off. Hmm. What place is there in your account of heaven, particularly with its emphasis on the beatific vision, what place is there for the resurrection of the body, as the Apostles' Creed puts it? I mean, is eternal life corporeal or incorporeal? Well, the question is very easy to answer. Uh, I think there's three questions here. Question one, is it true? Answer, yes. It's one of the articles of the creed. Uh, if Christ is not raised from the dead, our faith is in vain. We are liars, etc. 1 Corinthians 15. Second, why? Well, because God created us as embodied creatures. The body is not a, a prison house. It's not an accidental thing like a motel room. Uh, it's part of our being. And it has to be perfected together with our soul. We think of the body and the soul as if they're two entities or two things, like a ghost in a machine. That's very inaccurate. That's not Jewish or Christian. That's Gnostic. Uh, so the body has to be perfected uh, together with the soul. The soul is the soul of the body, and the body is the body of the soul. Uh, the third question, what form will that take? What will it look like? Uh, well, the best answer I think that we have is eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered the heart of man. We have no idea. But we will certainly be perfected in our humanity and we will recognize each other. We won't be strangers. We won't be aliens. We won't be bug-eyed monsters. Yes. So it's not um, like the Hindu doctrine of moksha, which is almost by definition the removal of created matter. Right. You're saying it's the perfection and elevation yes, the idea, to, its, to its true nature. The idea of creation is distinctively Western. The word in Hebrew, barach, which is a verb that only has God as its subject, uh, does not exist in any other ancient language. And since God perfected us, uh, God created us, he'll perfect us. He, he, will not, he did not make a mistake in creating us as we are. Yes. You just touched on a concept that is my final question. Um, while I've got a Catholic philosopher right in front of me and a, ton a Thomas Aquinas fan to boot, can you please explain hy hylomorphism for me? And why is it even significant? Oh, that's simply the Aristotelian old-fashioned word for what psychologists today call the psychosomatic unity, the unity of body and soul. Uh, the word form in modern English usually has a rather thin uh, and unimportant meaning. I made a formal apology, meaning I didn't really mean it from the heart. That's almost the opposite of what Aristotle meant by form. The form is the very essence of the thing. Uh, any artist knows that uh, uh, the form of a, a, a statue or a work of music or a, a painting is, is not the outside, it's the inside. It's the essence. Uh, but it's embodied, so it has matter. Uh, I think of the form and the matter as something like the uh, meaning of a book and the words of the book. There are two dimensions of the single thing. And you can't change the meaning without changing the words, and you can't change the words without changing the meaning. And the words are the body, and the meaning is the soul. Yes, so to um, circle back to something you said a moment ago, um, 
the body doesn't have a spirit or a soul. The body is the matter of the soul, and the soul is the form of the body. Hmm. What is the significance of that for life, death, and life beyond death? Well, for life right now, uh, there's always a temptation to be Gnostic, to identify yourself with your soul, to make your body an object in the world, and to say, my technology can conquer that. I think transgenderism is an example of it. It's an attempt to use the body as something other than yourself. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a, a very serious problem, and it, and it can't be simply dismissed. It has to be taken seriously, but it's, it's, it's not the body's fault. It's the, it's the soul's fault, the mind's fault. And for life beyond the uh, death? Well, the resurrection of the body means that we are in heaven, complete human beings. Between death and heaven, if there's some kind of time there, it certainly is not time that's measured by earthly clocks, because that's within the universe, and we, we don't appear at another time or space in the universe after we die. But there's presumably some events that take place between death and the resurrection of the body. Uh, I think it's likely that purgatory takes place in that sequence of events. Uh, I'm not sure whether the body participates in purgatory or whether it's just a matter of the soul. That could go either way. But uh, what happens at the end when our body is joined to the soul is that once again we become a complete human being. Uh, I'm a little suspicious of uh, digital analogies, but to think of yourself as a computer with a program that's uh, distinct from the hardware. And suppose the hardware conks out. The program can still be there, but you can't call it up on the screen. You can't actualize it. So when you die and the senses of your body are gone, it's as if you're paralyzed in every way, but you're still there. And then when you get the resurrected body again, you get the, the instruments for actualizing those things. Oh, that, that's, a, that's a helpful analogy. I really appreciate it. Peter Kreef, thank you so much for answering my questions. Thank you, John. They're wonderful questions. God bless you on your work. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you. Deceptions Podcast.